Well, hello and welcome to another episode of Tidings of Comfort and Joy, our podcast for Advent. And today's episode is part three of our short story for Advent. Chapter seven. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days, and he shall be their peace. You weren't really listening, were you? Emily was standing outside the Weber's house. She had had to squeeze her way out, past the chattering adults filling the doorways and hallways, all the time trying to avoid animated and gesticulating arms with glasses of mulled wine on the ends of them. Mathieu had followed her out. You weren't really, were you? I didn't used to listen either. But it was three years ago. I was walking home after one of these... uh, these meetings. It was at the girls' house, and the night was like tonight. You could see the Milky Way. You can if you come away from the lights. And it seemed like the stars were telling me to listen. I know that sounds stupid, but I started and, well, it all began to make sense, like the pieces began to fall into place. She looked at him, shifted her feet and changed the subject. Your mum? What's wrong with her? While Emily had not paid much attention to the readings and the speaking, she had been observant and she had observed how Mathieu's dad, Dr Weber, had sat beside his wife, her clasped hands in her lap covered with his, and how Mathieu had tended to her, bending down and whispering in her ear, bringing her a glass of wine, making sure she held it, and standing beside her with his hand on her shoulder as she brought it to her lips. Mathieu returned her gaze. She has cancer. He paused. She's dying. My father says this will be her last Christmas. He looked up to the dark night above and the stars which hung there. But you don't need to be a doctor to see that. And then he looked at Emily again. Or even a doctor's son, I guess. No, she said, and looked away, shivering as she did so. It was at that moment that the girls tumbled out of the door. It is fair to say that wherever they went together they tumbled, and tonight was no exception. It not being exactly clear which limb of whose body belonged to who and exited the house first. But there the four of them now stood, their breath forming clouds of mist in the night. Hi Emily, said the eldest though by no means the tallest, and extended her hand. I'm Juliet. Emily looked at the hand and took it. And even though she only held it for a moment, it was the first conscious touch she had given anyone in how long. Mathieu told us you would come tonight. We're so happy. She seemed to bounce on her toes as she said this but even bouncing did not quite bring her up to the height of her sister beside her. 
and these are my sisters Mathilde and Chloe and Rose. Each one held out her hand, and each time Emily took it. If anyone had been watching with a stopwatch in hand, and sadly they weren't, they would have recorded that the time Emily held each hand was ever so slightly longer than the time before. You are shifting, said Rose, the youngest. Shifting? asked Emily. Yes, shifting. And Rose gave what can only be described as a very reasonable impression of an English teenager shivering on a cold Swiss night. You mean shivering, said Chloe, pushing her sideways. And she's right, you are. You need some proper clothes. You will die wearing that up here. She waved a hand at her thin black coat. Emily was not used to feeling as though she did not fit in. Not when it came to her clothes, anyway. Sure, she and her friends thought they were edgy, pushing the limits non-conformists in black. But the truth was, they were their own tribe. They dressed much like one another and much like many others. But here, on a Swiss mountainside, on a crisp and cold and starlit night, with the church clock beginning to strike ten, she felt an outsider. An outsider being invited in. Tomorrow we will kit you out, said Mathilde. You're about my height, and given that I have the most style of anyone here. At this there was much scoffing from her sisters. You can start with my stuff. And given that all the sisters agreed vocally, Emily nodded. It may have looked to the man with a stopwatch, if he had been there, which he wasn't, that the nod was grudging. It wasn't. Emily would not have expressed it like this, but it was a nod of relief. There you go, said Matcher. No more shifting for you. The girls returned to the doorway, and one of them, it was not clear who, disappeared inside and returned a moment later, dragging one of the boys who Emily remembered seeing at the bus stop. He was followed by another, and with much tumbling the four girls and the two brothers joshed past Matthieu, waving as they went, and disappeared up the street. I'll go and see what my parents are doing, Emily said and once more made her way along the mulled wine assault course that was the hallway. She stood in the doorway to the living room and looked at her mother, now sitting beside Mathieu's mother, speaking with her. Madame Weber saw Emily watching them and weakly raised her hand just sufficiently to stop Emily's mother talking, and with the softest of smiles, one finger of that raised hand indicated to Janie where to look. As she did, Emily turned her head away and took in the rest of the room, which was filled with the hubbub of conversation. And there, in one corner, with glasses in hand, were her father, Monsieur Roulet, and Dr Weber. To see her father animated in conversation was to see a man she didn't know. She turned and once more made her way outside, knowing her parents would not be far behind. She was right. OK, said her father. Shall we go home? 
If it was possible for so few words to be spoken awkwardly, this was such an occasion. The three of them walked, without exchanging another word, towards the street that led to her late great-aunt's chalet. But as they did, Emily looked up at the stars. It seemed like the stars were telling me to listen, he had said. But how could stars talk, she thought. And right there, in the dark streets, she heard again the last line of that night's reading. And he shall be their peace. Perhaps she had been listening after all. Or perhaps the stars do speak. Chapter 8 For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counsellor. Things were different that night. Janie Harrison normally went out with the lights. The end of each day typically found her emotionally and physically exhausted. While her husband was, generally speaking, a patient man, even he at times found her lack of energy and interest during the evenings tiresome, though he never, or rarely, said so. The house had a voice of its own, responding to every movement within, but it now lay as still as its occupants. The only sound Janie could hear as she lay in bed was that of David's breathing beside her. Given that she was always the first to fall asleep, to hear her husband breathing was a strange thing. But there she lay, awake. It was not that when she shut her eyes she saw the jaundiced and yet smiling face of Madame Weber, though she did. It was that their conversation had left her, how could she describe it? Excited? Animated? No. It was as though she was alert, in a heightened state of expectancy. She had had at least three glasses of mulled wine, she calculated. At least was the best calculation she could make, it not being easy to tell quite how many times her glass had been refilled. She knew that the boy on the bus, Matthew, she thought his mother had called him, had done it once, and his father a second time. Then there was that round and red-faced man with the neatly combed and greased silver hair, wearing that light blue shirt with white flowers on it, who looked, as much as any man could, like a farmer. He came around to each little group of guests with a steaming jug, and when Janie attempted to resist him refilling her glass, he spoke in broken but perfectly understandable English of alcohol and evaporation and not to worry. And as he held the jug over her glass and refilled it, she noticed that his hands were as red and as scrubbed as his face. But red wine, and especially three glasses of red wine, would normally put her to sleep even more rapidly than normal. Tonight it was as though she had drunk three cups of coffee. Alert. That was how she felt, super alert. And all she could think of was Madame Weber. She had felt so tired and so numb for so long that to lie there thinking 
was to lie there alive. She knew her own grandmother had died of cancer when she was thirteen, but her parents had not taken her with them when they visited. All she knew of Granny's death was that there came a day when the weekly hospital visit ceased, and her parents dressed for the day in black, and Granny was no more. Madame Weber was the first dying person she had met, let alone spoken to. And Madame Weber was so obviously dying. She said so herself, but her face, her colour, her weakened movements, the care of her husband and the boy on the bus, and her friends, all spoke of approaching death. And yet, Madame Weber was the most alive person Janie had met. And it was that aliveness, in the almost felt shadow of death, it was that energy in the evident weakness and frailty that kept Janie awake. She could not shake it. The two of them had talked almost from the beginning. Madame Weber was clearly expecting them, and when they were introduced, she waved one of her friends away from the chair beside her, a friend who left with laughter, it should be said, and gesticulated for Janie to take her place. They had, obviously, broken off their conversation while a gentleman wearing a woollen jacket with upturned collar and wooden buttons read that night's reading. He did so in English, at Monsieur Roulet's request, and in honour of David's aunt and the new guests among them. But once he had finished, the two immediately took up their conversation again. They had talked of David's aunt, a woman Madame Weber evidently loved and, in some strange way, feared, and now missed. To hear her spoken of like this was quite new to Janie. To her mind, David's aunt was, to use his word, batty, crazy. And yet here was a woman talking of her as someone who had had a profound influence upon her. But then the conversation had moved on to teenage children. And in those sunken yellow eyes, Janie had felt an understanding, a compassion for her as a mother, as a fellow traveller. Her friends back in England, those she could still face seeing, shared the same burdens, but there was no sharing of burdens. She, they, were all defeated, even while they carried on fighting. But as Janie spoke with Madame Weber, she felt this burden, could she describe her own daughter as a burden, shared, and that by a woman so physically burdened. Janie had then summoned the courage, or maybe in the mulled wine had loosened her tongue, and they spoke of cancer and death. And it was that that had prompted Madame Weber to say it. This will be my last Christmas but I hope it will be your first. Janie did not know how long Madame Weber had been holding her hand for, but as Janie could not hold her gaze any longer, she looked down and saw them, those long, painfully thin, indescribably delicate, fragile hands covering her own. But what did she mean? I hope it will be your first. Janie had lived through 43 Christmases. The last several, she could not count how many, 
had become ordeals to be survived. If she never experienced another Christmas, she doubted she would mind. But that was because she had lived through so many, too many. Why would Madame Weber hope this year would be her first? Under the influence of the mulled wine, she might have asked her. She certainly began to reply. But Madame Weber's hand had lifted from hers. And there was Emily at the door. The moment had passed and it was time to leave. Beside her, David continued to breathe. Outside, the church clock struck one, but Janie heard neither. Sleep had finally come. Chapter 9 Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. When Emily awoke, the room was lighter than the previous morning. She checked her watch. It was also later. Seventeen minutes past nine, to be precise. Had she really managed to sleep through nine tollings of the church bell? Obviously she had. She reached for her phone on the bedside table. But even as she extended her hand and it hovered over the phone, she realised there was no point checking it. There would be no reception, and, given her fat three-pin English plug did not fit in the slim Swiss socket, it would also now be dead. She was surprised that realisation did not bother her more. But that was because something else was stirring in the back of her mind, something that was now beginning to make it slow and sleepy way to the front. Mathieu. Mathieu said he would come round that morning. How early, or now late, could he come? She asked herself. She swung her legs out of bed, let the floorboards take her weight, and, as she had done the previous morning, creaked her way to the windows and the shutters beyond them. Opening them, the room flooded with morning light and cold, crisp air. Just like yesterday, she looked up at the mountains and the sky, bluer and clearer than she had ever seen sky before. This time, she let the thought linger, the thought that what she was looking at, what she was feeling at this moment, was beautiful. Even the cold air, she closed her eyes and allowed the thought to envelop her. Then, stepping away from the window, she went to the wash basin. She knew what she intended to do, and looking at her morning face in the little pine-edged and blemished mirror that hung above the sink only confirmed her decision. She turned the tap and, scooping cold water with her hand, began to wash her face. Drops of black ink, mascara and eyeliner, ran into the basin and swirled down the plug hole. She was sat outside on a bench against the wall of the chalet when Mathieu arrived a little after 9.45. She stood when she saw him coming, but after their initial and on her part slightly awkward greeting, she did not look directly at him. He explained that he had talked to the girls and he was to take Emily there for them to provide her with some warmer clothes, or at least a proper coat. If Emily had any reservations about this, 
Fifteen minutes sat on a bench outside in the fresh cold of the shade had dispelled them. As they walked, Emily asked him the question that had been bugging her as she sat waiting. Does your mum dying bother you? He looked at her sideways. The answer was so obvious he wondered why she should ask it. Yes, of course, he replied. When Emily did not follow up with something else, he asked his own question. Why do you ask? Well, last night, none of you seemed bothered by it. And if it was my mum, I would get that. I mean, not that I want her to die or anything, but, well, it's not like we're close or nothing. But you and your dad and your mum, you seem close, you talk and touch. And yet... I didn't know whether it bothered you. I saw you helping her and touching her, so I guessed it would, but, well, it just didn't seem like that obvious, meaning if it was me, her dying would fill the room, or, or it wouldn't, but it wasn't, if you get it. Matthew was not entirely sure he did get it. As good as his English was, it did not always meet the challenge of Emily's sentence structure. But he nodded anyway. When they arrived at the girl's house, a chalet not unlike her great-aunt's, they were ready for her. Four large blue Ikea bags, stuffed with an assortment of winter clothes, were similarly awaiting her in the centre of the living room floor. Despite never having experienced the joy of growing up with a sister, Matcha understood only too well how events would now play out, and, when no one was looking, made a quiet getaway. He did not need to try too hard at the quiet part of his getaway. The four sisters were already making sufficient noise to cover the retreat of a Swiss army bicycle division, let alone one solitary soldier. He smiled as he closed the door behind him. She would not be cold tonight, he thought, and neither would she be dressed in black. He was right on both counts. Well, that brings this episode to a close. Part four will come out on Christmas Eve. And to finish, here is a wonderful carol. It's called the Sussex Carol, my home county. If you don't know the lyrics, they are awesome. God bless you all. <laughs>